Our call to worship is from Psalm 78, 9-17. The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had showed them. He did miracles in the sight of their ancestors, in the land of Egypt, in the region of Zon. He divided the seas and led them through it. He made the water stand up like a wall. He guided them with a cloud by day and with light from fire all night. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. The reading will be found in 1 John 4, verses 16 through 18. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Today's reading will be found in Matthew 13, verses 57 and 58, on page 903. And they they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, Only in their own town and their own homes are prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of the lack of faith. Well, we've, we've looked at several texts that I think are really uh, not naturally related. But I think if we take my theme and context, are really quite connected. We've been talking about signs. And it's a word that's very interesting because uh, we think of it in terms of postings, mostly, I think, in our culture. Stop signs, yield signs, traffic signs of every variety. Instructional signs. Triangles and circles. Triangles over men's restrooms and circles over women's. Signs that tell us what we're not to do, like the big red circle with the line through it and your cell phone in the middle. No cell phones kind of thing. Um, We have all kinds of postings that we think of as signs, and that's primarily the use in our language. But we also have signs as a root word for things like signifier or signature, right? And the signature is your mark. The signature is your individual script, or X in old times, that indicated that you were affixing the sign of your word. That is to say, you were affixing to whatever you put that to your verification, your truth. There were signet rings in days of old. Today they look like this. We don't wear them on our fingers anymore. 
We carry them in our wallets, and I don't imagine it'll be too long before they're implanted behind your left ear somewhere. In other words, your credit is your signet ring, or your signet ring is your credit. And in days of old, the signet ring not only proved that you were from the family or from the uh, entity involved, but demonstrated that there was value to any credit extended behind that, assets to cover any line of credit extended. We have... uh, those kinds of meanings, but we don't usually think in terms of portents, heavenly movements of objects and so forth, uh, unusual events in the world or in nature. We don't typically think of those in suit what we would now call, I think, superstitious terms. We don't tend to be a culture that thinks in terms of the auspicious. But if you're of Asian descent, particularly if you're of uh, Chinese or Korean descent, you might very well think in terms of the auspicious. You see, they have lots of different signs. I was born, for example, in the year of the dragon. That's a sign. I was born at the time of the year of the dragon that the dragon flew, which is auspicious, fortunate, and I'm waiting for that to pay off. (laughs) My faith in that whole system is beginning to waver just a little bit. Uh, Or maybe I need to wake up and accept all of the fortune that is truly mine, like the rest of us, right? How fortunate are we really? The last sign use we don't use in our culture at all. It's a sort of proof. And it's what we would call a miracle. We are not a culture of miracles. In fact, Western civilization in general, even faithful in Western civilization in general, would largely deny the reality of miracles. There's got to be underlying them some kind of scientific or naturalistic explanation. That is our bent culturally. When we do evangelism, interestingly enough, we do a lot of work with signs. We have a publication as Adventists called Signs of the Times. And what that publication does is highlight happenings, geopolitical and natural sort of disaster happenings that point to the fulfillment of the prophecy that we are entering the beginning of birth pangs. And I have yet to be a part of an evangelistic series that focused on signs as a positive thing. Invariably, the signs are antiquated, usually, 1798 and so forth, Lisbon earthquake and the darkening of the sun and moon in the 1800s, and invariably point to 
uh, epidemics like AIDS and disasters like uh, the tsunami and uh, these kinds of things as proof positive that we are nearing an end. And then we talk about the most dreaded sign of all, only we don't call it a sign, we call it a mark. And it's the mark of the beast. Now this is real in scripture. And the devil goes about as a lion seeking whom he might devour. Don't underestimate that. Don't underestimate him. And the mark of the beast may have everything to do with economics. I don't know. What it really has to do with is what side you've chosen. What it really has to do with is where your loyalties lie. Because Jesus said it, didn't he? You cannot serve God and mammon. What will you give up? What will you endure for the cause of Christ? So the mark of the beast is placed upon these individuals who have made a choice. And the choice is not for the kingdom of God. The choice is not to follow Christ through whatever inconveniences, boycotts, or pain may be involved. Whatever sacrifice might be called for. The mark of the beast is the negative sign and we see it as symbolically placed on the head and on the wrist, the hand, kier, which actually involves fingertip to elbow. We see that as the, the sign worth talking about so often, the mark worth talking about. Well, this is good. This is a uh, part of the total picture of the truth of what we might want to be aware of. But it's interesting that the mark of the beast is on the forehead and on the arm. Because if you watch a Jewish Orthodox person go to pray, the phylacteries go on the forehead and on the arm. The scriptures are placed there. This is not the sign or mark of the beast, by the way. Our Jewish friends are not marked that way. This is how they've prayed for millennia. And interestingly enough, the seal of God also on the forehead. What we're talking about is symbolism. We're talking about knowing in our heads what our choice is. Slave to sin or servant of Christ? Child of God or son of the devil? Friend of God or foe? We're talking about where your life and allegiance and actions will lay. And the seal of God is not talked about nearly as often as the mark of the beast. The seal of God is the opposite. It's a reflection of your choice to follow God wherever God takes you and wherever God leads, through whatever trials come. In our text in the Psalms today, and you can read the wider version, and I really encourage you to do that. Though, though, well, it's, we have time. Open up your, your Bible. 
I do apologize. Today I have my NIV. I think I took my TNIV home, even though I have one there. Got to fire the bulletin secretary. Let's, uh, let's hold off on firing the pastor for a little while. Psalm 78. O oh, people, hear my teaching and listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from old. Revelation. Truth. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide from their children. We will tell the next generation. The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. That's the preamble to what we read today. And if we back out of that just a minute and understand the context, David is writing and we have a covenant relationship, a covenantal relationship between God and the people of Israel, a chosen connection. The sign the people carry is circumcision and obedience to the law is their act of love and sacrifice. David describes the law as something joyous and wonderful, you see. And for God's part, he will be Israel's God and protector and provider. And the miracles that he does are part of the story that reminds Israel of God's fulfillment of his part of covenant, that they might be faithful in keeping the law and in fulfilling their part of covenant. Because there are two pieces to this equation. So the law here in David's writing is good and Israel is to be reminded through the acts of God of the necessity of keeping that law and the goodness of that law. And then to today's reading. The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned their back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant. That helps us know that's what we've been talking about. And refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the region of Zon. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand firm like a wall. That's an achievement. He guided them with cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the desert and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the desert against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they crave. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the desert? When he struck the rock, water gushed out and streams flowed abundantly. But can he also give us food? Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord heard them, he was angry. 
His fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel for they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. By the way, Jacob and Israel are one. Jacob is the ancestor who became named Israel for he had wrestled with God. They did not believe God or trust in his deliverance. Is that powerful? In condemnation or what? How often are we guilty of the same? Not believing in God or trusting in his deliverance. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. He let loose the east wind from the heavens and led forth the south wind by its power. He rained meat down on them like dust, flying birds like sand on the seashore. He made them come down inside their camp, all around their tents. They ate until they had more than enough, for he had given them what they craved. And it goes on. It's a long passage, and I would like to stop there and encourage you to pick it up this afternoon. But in this brief section of this psalm that we've read is a recounting of God's miracles and wonders, also known as signs. One of the first things we have to know when we study signs, when we think about signs, is that it isn't necessarily that which we don't understand. It isn't necessarily the alien invasion. It isn't necessarily a major conspiracy theory. It isn't necessarily something visible or negative. No, the signs of God, excuse me, are the wondrous ways in which he works. The ways in which he enters our world to bring peace and hope and grace and truth and life and love and joy. The greatest danger we face at the end of time, when that time comes, is not having been aware of the miracles of the life we've lived. And not having taken time to count and recount them. To raise our Ebenezer, to build our altars, and I'm speaking metaphorically, to remember God's provisions to us in this desert we call life. That is the greatest danger. So when we study signs, you won't hear from me a great deal of talk about the negative. I want you to start with the positive. I want you to start with the way in which your own life is a miracle and the way in which every step of it, God's saving grace and provision have been there for you and with you. And that we remember to the end the ways in which God has led us that we might have confidence that though it seem as though he has forsaken us, he is with us 
to the end. That is the first sign worth paying attention to. The signs, by the way, are carried over in the life of Christ, and in the New Testament it is much more commonly referred to as a sign. Which brings us to first, uh, excuse me, brings us to Matthew, I think is what I referenced. Matthew 13. I'm going to start in verse 53. And remember, this is about page 902, 901, somewhere in there. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown. He began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Wouldn't it be something to hear Jesus teach? Wow. We get to if we'll read his word. We can experience this amazement. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Aha. Don't we resent it when someone special is born among us? Why did they get the gifts and not us? Why was the mantle placed upon them and not us? Why were they chosen and not us? They know Jesus, but they don't know. And Jesus says to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. That's a truism. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Over and over again it refers to miracles and miraculous powers and it says he did not work signs or did work signs and wonders among them. His miracles and wonders were signs. They were his signature. You see, when he straightens up the one bent, that's the signature of a creator. When he puts sight into one who cannot see, that's the signature of a creator. When he makes the lame to dance and the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak, that's the sign of a creator. When he brings life from a corpse, that is the sign of a creator. When he walks among people and all they have to do is ask and he can speak and a work is done, the generative word of the living God who is the word made flesh dwelt among us is at work. Something powerful is happening. The miracles are his sign. They are his signature, his Signet. And in a place where there is no faith, there are few signs. In a place where he is known only as a carpenter's son, there is no vision that will enable the gifts that he has been given 
to flourish and bloom. Jesus did miraculous things as signs. And it's an extension of the Old Testament God who worked miracles on Israel's behalf. The second set of signs that I'd like you to think about or pay attention to have to do with a a linear piece starting in the promise to Abraham. Go to a place I will show you, I will give it to you as an inheritance and I will make of thee a great nation. And oh, by the way, your job now is to remove your foreskin. Sounds like a fair deal, barely. Abraham circumcises himself and all the males in his household and obeys God. He is not a Jew. He is from Ur of the Chaldees. He is Mesopotamian. And in this act of obedience and listening to the voice of the true God, he symbolically through this says, I will be yours. He marks himself in covenant as God's and God's promise to him is God's sign. The covenant has many iterations through scripture. The next most noticeable one is not the giving of the covenant of law on Sinai, which follows with Moses, but is the covenant by which God says, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. And he admonishes us to be circumcised of heart. Now that's a little difficult conceptually, certainly impossible physically to achieve. But what God is asking us to do is to set our hearts on him. To make him our choice to join his team, so to speak. To be his people. And he will be our God. And the loci of impetus, if you will, the loci of control, the point of focus will shift from a tablet of stone on which his laws are written to an internal understanding a spirit within he promises that it's going to pour out his spirit on all peoples and that our young people will prophesy and so forth remember I like to think of it as internal loci of control. We're no longer motivated by the external compulsion of written law. We're internally motivated by the presence of a living God in us. Does this make any sense to you? How many of you don't have to have a watch and if somebody asks you the time, you can tell the time within like, I don't know, three, five minutes? Anybody out there like that? There are two or three of you. There are people out there who just have this incredibly acute sense of time. They don't need a watch. They don't. They just, you ask them, well, what time is it? They just kind of like, I'm going to go with about 12.47. You're kind of like, I don't know where they got that. But you look at your watch and they have plus minus five, ten minutes, they're right there. Some people are really scary. They're within two or three minutes sometimes. That just, whoa. 
I wake up at, the, at night and I couldn't tell you what time it is. I have to look. And then I don't reset my clock, so it's still an hour off. So I have to do the math in my head. It says 2.15. Okay, it's 3.15. Great to be awake. Internal. Internal. And then when we get past that, we get to something called faith that looks a lot like what Abraham exercised, only this time it's in the promise of Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his son that if you'll just believe, you can have eternal life. If you'll just believe, if you'll exercise your faith, if you'll shift that focus toward the Son of God and the living God, I will put my seal on you. You make that choice. Nobody can make it for you. But the seal of God in Revelation is the circumcision of Abraham in Genesis. Whose side are you on? Where do you hear the voice and where does it come from and what does it tell you to do? Are you aligned with goodness and grace or is every thought of your heart evil continually? That's the continuity of signs. The sign of circumcision. The invisible sign of circumcision of heart. The sign of allegiance to a living creator made flesh and dwelt among us, who says believe. And who in that power of belief is freed to work signs and wonders that you can see. And finally, at the end of time, provides yet another sign in the form of a seal, a seal of God imprinted where the phylacteries would be, where the scripture would be, where on the converse the mark of the beast would be. This metaphorical place of choice and action, of believing and doing. So this is the word of the Lord. One last place that we need to go and that's 1 John I'm going to start in verse 7 dear friends let us love one another for love comes from God everyone who loves God has been born of God and knows God whoever does not love does not know God because God's very essence God's very nature is love This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. So what is the sign of God living in you? Love. That you love who? One another. 
Does this mean only the easy to love? Only the Adventists? Okay, let's be generous. Only the Christians. Only those from monotheistic traditions? Only your friends? Only good conservative Republicans like you? I could reverse that too. It says this is how we know that we love one another. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? This is the will of God, you see. God may have chosen Abraham, but he did so to bless an entire world. Right? That's what the scripture says. Hmm. Oh, it's such a challenge to be God's child sometimes because I don't want to love everyone. It's easy in my world to find people who don't seem to deserve love. Have you found that true for you? Don't lie to me. I can see right through you. We've all met that person and God says, you don't have to like them. You do have to love them with my love. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he lives in us because he's given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anybody acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he is in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way also, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. When is the day of judgment? When? Do we not teach that it's at the end of time? I'm confused. Or maybe you're confused. I think that's exactly what we teach, right? Now we believe we're in the pre-Advent judgment. That's one of the interpretations that comes to us out of the formation of our denomination and the great disappointment which I referenced a couple weeks ago. But the day of wrath, the day of judgment is understood as the day of the coming, the end of time. And so on the day of judgment we will have confidence Love will have been made complete because in this world we have chosen. We are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Sometimes loving is very difficult. Sometimes loving doesn't look like you would think. Sometimes loving is boundaries. Sometimes loving 
is removing ourselves from a very toxic or difficult situation. Loving isn't warm, oozing emotions and constant hugs and kisses. Loving isn't uh, a string of affirmations where undeserved or praise where not earned. Love involves life and choice and discipline. And sometimes loving somebody, the best that we can do is give them space. So I don't want you to be childish in your reading of this. I don't want you to think that somehow you have to do something that is not within God's power to grant you to do. You just have to choose. The last sign that we need to pay attention to is that the signs in general are not about fear. They're not about the indecipherable or the unknowable. They're not about gaining knowledge, being Gnostic, gaining knowledge so that you can somehow survive. The sign that matters is that God is in you and you are in him and that is evidenced by one thing and one thing alone in scripture. That you have understood his love in such a way that you now have been empowered and freed to love the world around you and to love the brother whom you've seen and your neighbor is yourself. And yes, even your enemies. That is the call. That is the sign. So, that's a lot. Let's review. The first sign we need to pay attention to is the wonders, miracles, signs, happenings, things that God has placed in our very lives and before our very eyes that extend not only what he did for Israel of old but what Christ did in his lifetime and what has happened in apostolic succession and through the graces of God ever since. The miracles don't stop. Let's mark them. Let's remember them. Second sign is the sign that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. And that is that your choice and your follow-up action ends in something very special. God in you and you in God and the seal of God on you. That's the determiner in judgment. And lastly, the sign that your Christianity and faith mustn't be marked by fear. Because God is love, and love casts out fear. And love is made perfect, not in fear, but in service, in fellowship, in touching one another's lives. So, don't worry about epidemics, don't worry about wars. Don't worry about the economy. Stop focusing on the meteor that's supposed to go between the sun and the moon here in a week. 
It is pretty big, though, I have to admit. <laughs> These are not the signs. Not the ones you need to be paying attention to. The others are the ones you need to be paying attention to. I'm going to uh, end there. But I've been asked to find a way to help us respond. The way we have designed our worship is that after the word is given and presented, we present God with our best, with our gifts, with our tithes and offerings. So I hope you'll consider that week to week. I hope that'll be a part of your thinking and part of your planning. So that as the deacons step forward now and as they collect our tithes, that we'll be faithful. I'm guessing there are some 160 people here today. And yet, sometimes we don't even have 20 envelopes. Are we bringing our gifts to the Lord? So let's remember our tithes, for he calls for those. And our offerings today are for church budget. Let's support one another in this place and make this sanctuary a fit vessel of service in this community. And let us be blessed as we bless God and one another. Amen. And so our God, we would choose you and take the signs that go with it. For we would love as you have loved us. Amen.